Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing well. Just really excited. Had a great weekend. How about you? I'm not doing too bad. Steve Dangle just invaded my city the other day for his uh, book tour and uh, had a crazy long lineup at the chapters at 403 in Dundas. So so all is good in the world. Mississauga's really taken off. RJ Barrett had a big game for them in Duke the other day. So, so yeah, all is good in the magical world of Mississauga for me. Awesome. That's great to hear. So what are we, uh, what are we getting into today? So... After the Craig Custance article this past week on the player tracking data and when it's going to be coming out and what teams are thinking about using it and how they think they're going to be using it, I thought it would be a really interesting topic to dive into today because I tend to be very analytics-focused in my approach. I know that you tend to do that as well, but you're also very tactical-focused and you use video to help break down plays. So I thought it would be really interesting to just kind of talk about this player tracking data that's coming because I feel like it's been a, a big missing element when it comes to player evaluation for the last little while. And I know that it's not going to be public at first, but let's talk about how teams are going to be using it and maybe some of the tactical advantages you can gain from it. And then later in the podcast, we'll talk about the pros and cons of it not being super public. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it started with the uh, the Craig Custins article that came out earlier this week in The Athletic. And if you haven't read that, I definitely recommend that you do because... It goes into great detail on what's going to be available, sort of the limitations of it, where the NHL is going, and the timeline. And Craig does a really good job of breaking down how everything kind of came to be and the process that they're going through. So I think it's a really exciting time for not just um, the NHL, but also for fans and everyone involved with the game because teams are going to have to change how they look at things. You're not going to just be able to myopically look at things anymore and sort of ignore this plethora of data that's now going to be available. I mean, you say that, but at the same time, we've seen a lot of teams over the last few years ignore very obvious trends when it comes to players who are on the ice for a lot of shots against, a lot of scoring chances against, a lot of goals against, and it's consistently been a trend throughout their career, yet they still get big contracts, whether it's a a Jack Johnson or, or Eric Goodbranson, so... I feel like optimistically you you want to think that it's going to lead to a big change and you know revolutionizing the game but when you look at sports like you know baseball or the NBA it tends to be a very slow revolution that eventually happens I'm I'm not sure how quickly it's going to take over in the NHL but I'm definitely excited because I feel like this has always been something that we're missing when it comes to how we evaluate players with the limited public data we have right now well, yeah, and um, it should be noted that to start, this is absolutely not going to be public, and we can get into that later, but you touched on it perfectly. Baseball's got tracking, NBA has tracking, soccer's got tracking, I believe the NFL has tracking, so hockey's sort of the last big player to get this type of player tracking, and I think it'll, well, depending on how it's used by the people who are employed at the NHL and within NHL front offices. I think it's definitely a huge step forward in the type of information that's going to be available, and it should help make more informed decisions by the teams. 
Yeah. And I think for me, one of the, the biggest things analytically that we struggle with is quantifying defense. I know that we can look at shots against, scoring chances against. Uh, I know that some tracking companies like SportLogic can look at passes to the slot. But I feel like having access to like a much bigger data set and having, you know, 30 frames per second uh, kind of a player tracking is really going to result in us being able to quantify the idea of spacing. At least NHL teams will be able to do this behind the scenes. And this has always been a big thing for me. I want to know how much space is the defender giving a forward in the offensive zone or how much space is the entire team defense giving the opposition when it comes to space in the defensive zone. In the NBA, spacing is such a huge phenomenon that's really taken over the game. Just look at Steph Curry, the idea behind one player having huge gravitational pull and then the other players having much more open space to generate their shots. In the NHL, I feel like it's a big factor, but we never really think about it because it's impossible to measure right now. I feel like teams are finally going to be able to measure it and see hmm, which players offensively are really good at opening up space for their teammates and which defensive players are exceptional at closing off that space in the defensive zone. So I think it's going to be, be huge when it comes to the defensive side of the game. It's much like the MLB. Offense was always really easy to quantify, but defense was always the toughest one, and that's where player tracking really came in and helped the MLB. I think it's going to be a similar idea with hockey. Yeah, and I also think tactically you hear coaches talk all the time um, about how the best players make other players better because they create space for those players. So guys like Sidney Crosby created space for Dupuy and Kunitz, and McDavid creates space for whatever line mates they decide to give him. And Nylander creates space, and Marner creates space for Tavares. Now that you have this player tracking that's going to be available, you're going to be able to quantify just how much space the superstars or the players that get talked about as creating space for their teammates, you're going to be able to quantify that. And I think that's potentially massive in the way that you talked about on defense I think it's also very relevant for offense because you really only recognize it when the superstars do it but this information is going to be widely available throughout the NHL so when you're looking to potentially add a piece to your team maybe there's a guy who's playing on the third line that creates way more space than he was originally thought to via the eye test and that's potentially uh, and an efficiency or a weak point that hasn't been identified. So maybe we see more value contracts or guys who change places, change teams, and see a spike in play just because their style, the player tracking has helped identify that their style fits well with a different style of player or a way that a different team plays. I think style of play is a really interesting point because I feel like when I watch the NBA, there are some really good metrics you can look at when it comes to like when a guy's on the court, when a guy's off the court, the difference, and after adjusting for the different factors, you can see that some players just have a much better impact on the game. And if I go a few years back, uh, a player like Amir Johnson on the Raptors, even though he didn't put up a lot of points, he didn't get a bunch of rebounds or assists or anything, when he was on the court, he had a big impact because of the little things he was doing. But his play style wouldn't mesh with certain other players like for example if you played him on a team that already had another big man who couldn't shoot on the floor the spacing wouldn't work and the chemistry wouldn't work but if you put him on a team with four other shooters and some primary ball handlers and a team that played some solid defense he could really fit in there well and help drive your offense drive your defense a bit better set better screens help you defensively so even though he was analytically a great 
on-court player, and then when he was off the court, they did a lot worse. Stylistically, he wouldn't have worked with certain teams, and it's hard to quantify that specifically without any kind of tracking data. I feel like this will be interesting to see in the NHL. Like Maybe a a player who plays a very slowed-down game, you know, more slowly moving the puck up the ice, cycling it in the offensive zone, really slowing the game down. Think of like a Joe Thornton, maybe. Maybe that player works well in one system, but in a speedier up-tempo system that relies on stretch passes, maybe they don't have as much success. I'd be really interested to see what the, the dynamic there was when you look at uh, player tracking and, and trying to evaluate whether or not a player's a, a stylistic fit for one team or another. Yeah, and that brings up roster construction, which, I mean, you've discussed in your articles the merits of using analytics to place certain players together and obviously behind the scenes I've had a little bit of experience doing that as well Um, and I think that the player tracking is really going to have an impact on roster construction and Craig alluded to this in his article because once you have a big enough sample size and you know how the analytics community is with their sample sizes coaches can then get involved and say okay we have upcoming trade deadline or free agency this is what I think the team is lacking please go out and get me a player that does this. Well, if you're an analyst, so let's say I come to you and I say, okay, I need a player that creates space in the middle of the ice for shots. Well, now that we have player tracking, you could go more than likely and find players using this data that do create space in the middle of the ice for shots. Could you not? Yeah, and or if you're just thinking of finding the right mesh on a team, you you want a player who's a great net driver who wins most of his puck battles on the forecheck and is defensively responsible, takes away lots of space on the backcheck. We can watch lots of hockey and determine like, okay, that's something that Zach Hyman does well. But from just purely looking at numbers, that's something that's difficult to do. That's something where you need to mesh both the eye test with the numbers. Whereas this is something that analytically you could just quickly pull up if you had tracking data. You know, in the NBA, if you want to know which player hits a lot of his open shots offensively and is good at contesting shots defensively from watching a lot of tape you can determine that but you can also just quickly pull up hey what is it what is catch and shoot three percentage and how often does he contest shots when he's close to a defender you can quickly pull that up with the nba you're gonna be able to pull up similar information in the nhl behind the scenes so again from a from a team's perspective from a roster construction perspective the teams that are relying on this data i think are going to get a huge competitive advantage I just would like to see it in the public sphere. But again, I guess that's a conversation for a few minutes from now. We're still talking about how teams are going to be using it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Craig pointed out was that the teams are going to have access to the raw data. And having access to raw data versus clean data, I mean, maybe you want to speak to sort of what the difference is there, but it's massive in terms of how different teams can choose to manipulate the data. Well, yeah, cleaning data is so much fun. That's just what I live for, but... (laughs) (laughs) it's awful it's the worst but when you have raw data you can do a crazy amount of things with it you can be very creative in the way that you go about using it you look at for example the the public data we have in the nhl right now think about how basic it is it's literally when a player's on the ice when a player's off the ice we know what shots were taken and where they were taken from that's literally all we have and we've been able to develop a, a wealth of knowledge and and prove a lot of cool things by simply using a lot of interesting analytic techniques with the raw data. And I think it goes to show that 
machines can be very powerful, you know, uh, computers can be very powerful, even with limited data. So the more data you have, the more you can do with it. And I know that the counter argument here is going to be, well, you know, it's, it's a sport at the end of the day, this comes down to X's and O's and, and players putting the puck in the net. And when it comes to the way that society has evolved, I feel like we've used machines to solve our most important problems. If you've ever seen the imitation game, one of my favorite movies, it's a great movie, and it's about the invention of machine learning. It's about how the German code breakers, or sorry, there's a, a German code called Enigma that they used during the World War, uh, Second World War, World War II, and humans tried so hard to break this code and they couldn't do it, and this genius, his name was Alan Turing, he decided, I'm, I'm going to build a machine to try to determine this because it's too much for the human brain to take in. He spent all his time creating this machine, the machine worked, and it was the beginning of the machine learning revolution. It was the first ever computer. And it was the beginning of the end for the Germans too. Like that was the turning point. Yep. And ever since that, I mean, we've been, the human society has evolved ridiculously with the amount of technological revolutions we've had. But I feel like if you think that hockey with six players on one side of the ice and six players on the other side of the ice with 12 variables, if you think that's too complicated to, to solve with, you know, machine learning techniques or, using data to try to learn more about the game, then, man, we wouldn't be very far as a society. Think about, like, the human body and how many variables are involved with that, yet modern medicine's come a long way, you know? So I feel like a lot of the times we want to convince ourselves that sports are immune to math or they're immune to science, but at the end of the day, we can use information to teach us things about the game, even though a lot of us might not want to admit it. It's, it's the way every other field has advanced through technology, through math, through science. And I feel like sports are slowly catching on to that as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things with the raw data that's going to be key is that teams can have in-house kind of analysts or programmers, and they can build their own programs to clean and use the data, how each team deems to be effective. And to be fair, they decide what is and isn't important to them, and that gives teams that want to use the data to the full extent a competitive advantage because they can kind of innovate and create different metrics or key performance indicators that will tell them okay this is sort of what we're striving for this is ideal in terms of how they want to build their team or how they want their team to play so I think that the raw data and you give the teams the option to either build out their department or Basically, you tell them, we're giving this to you and you use it how you see fit. Because there's a salary cap, you're always looking for a different competitive advantage. And this is a way for teams who have significant resources and staff to be able to gain a competitive advantage. The teams like the Leafs, who have a huge staff, the Hurricanes, who have Eric Tulski, even the Penguins, who have Sam Ventura, and Minnesota, where they have Andrew and Alex, those teams are going to be able to rely on the people that they have to build out sort of their program what's interesting is that we assume that it's going to be the the more uh how do i word this we assume it's going to be the teams with a lot more money that are going to get the most out of it but i found that if you look in sports without a salary cap you know you look at sports like baseball for example there are teams like the astros or the tampa bay rays who don't have the money to compete with the other big teams so instead of spending two or three million dollars on a player they invest that in their not only their development but in their research and their analytics department 
to help try to find market efficiencies that are going to help them in the future. So if we use an example of, say, a team like the Carolina Hurricanes or a team like, I know everyone's going to want to bring up the Arizona Coyotes, but let's bring up a, a random team that doesn't make much money. Maybe the Ottawa Senators moving forward, even though it's never going to happen with Eugene Melnick. If they wanted to save money in the future, rather than spending $4 million on a player in free agency in a year or two, if you invest that money into a bunch of programmers and a bunch of analysts who can do a lot of cool stuff with the data that's going to be coming out, you might be able to save yourself from spending a lot of money on a bad player and then instead putting that money into smart, cost-efficient, underrated players. And I feel like uh, there, there's the joke on, on Twitter is that, man, if, if, if we could just tell certain teams to just not make a specific decision every year, it would save them a lot of headache in the future. For example, the Nikita Zaitsev contract in Toronto or the Milan Lucic contract in Edmonton. These contracts are poison pills that really hurt your team down the line. If you can invest money in preventing yourself from making those decisions, it's going to save you in the long term. So even though we think it's going to be the big teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Montreal Canadiens, the New York Rangers, who are going to gain the most from this data that's going to be available, I wouldn't be shocked if there are some low-budget teams who might see the value in it as a market inefficiency. Yeah, and that's sort of what I was getting at in terms of, yes, the Leafs and the bigger market teams have the opportunity to spend that money both with their players and in the front office. But, I mean, it's definitely worth noting that smaller market teams have a lot to gain here because if you invest, like you said, in your front office as opposed to investing in strictly players, you can find those market inefficiencies and you can find those players that are seen as sort of diamonds in the rough. And that's going to be key for keeping your team under budget and if you're a smaller market team it's going to allow you to still compete with the bigger salary teams another thing i've thought about do you think player tracking is going to help us slowly start to solve the conundrum that is goaltending because I feel like we have not very much repeatable or predictive value right now in the in the public sphere. We just kind of look at everything and go, man, there's there's really nothing here. It's just a flip of the coin, a roll of the dice, goaltending is voodoo. I'm wondering if maybe with some more player tracking data, maybe we can adjust for certain factors a bit better and start to measure and quantify and predict goaltending performance a bit better at the NHL level. Yeah, I mean, that's a great sort of question because one of the things that is going to be available to the teams is is the use of the VR goggles and that's going to be able to show players and what they see and what they potentially could be seeing at any given moment so let's say you're a goaltender and your puck tracking is not sort of up to par and that is an issue sometimes with some goaltenders or the goalie coach is trying to see what the goaltender is looking at well now that they're going to have access to this sort of VR technology. They're going to be able to see what the goaltender is looking at at any given moment. So you can, and this goes for the players too, you can use that as a teaching tool, not only for development, but for your current players. Like I'm talking with your prospects. You can use that with your prospects as well to show them examples of certain things. But for a goaltender specifically, if you want your goaltender um, to begin checking the poster, you want him to know when he needs to be sort of looking over his shoulder. You can use that technology to develop that skill with your goaltender because that's something that is able to be learned and I think could be a massive step in developing how goaltenders view the game. 
Um, but the one thing we should mention just with all of this is that the NHL tracking will not have biometrics. So there are teams that use the wearable GPS units that like Catapult has, but the NHL itself will not provide in the agreement biometric data is not included i think that makes sense legally because that's basically the individual the players like um property right exactly and i agree that biometric data probably shouldn't be taken into consideration and wearing the gps units is not part of the cba um it's just it's an option so if teams ask their players to wear it a player can say yes or no um but the biometric data will not be taken yeah, what this basically comes down to is similar to what the NBA has, right? With um, cameras in every single rink that can locate players and the puck frame by frame for the entire 60 minutes of a game. And I feel like that's the NHL's property, you know? That is players on the ice doing things for the NHL. That's the product of the NHL. That's the play on the ice. That's their property. I can understand how the NHL would say, yeah, okay, we, we should have access to this data much like the NBA does. But when it comes to an individual's heart rate, you know, an individual's um, breathing patterns, an individual's wear and tear in their knees, you know, that's Ron Hainsey's property if we want to look at that. That's Sidney Crosby's property if we want to be looking at his brainwaves during a game. So it's I agree. It's, it's not fair to make the biometric stuff public, but I definitely would like to see the NHL data, the the sports view, cameras, all that stuff. I'd love to see that be public, and I know it's not going to be. So I, I just want to quickly turn the conversation to that right now because I feel like in the private sphere, behind the scenes with NHL teams, I think this can lead to a lot of really cool new revolutionary stuff, especially for the teams that really lean into it. But in the public sphere... We're only going to get a few certain things from people who have access to the data. And I think a lot of the analysis in the public sphere is going to be terrible because we're going to get stats like, oh, distance skated in this game. And it turns out that uh, who's, who's a third or fourth line player who's chasing the game a lot? You know, it turns out that that Dave Boland all those years was an excellent hockey player. And it's like, well, no, he's, he was chasing the game all the time, whereas a player like Nicholas Lidstrom, who was always in perfect position, never really needed to skate that much because... He made the right play at the right time. I know this has been a problem in, in soccer where they look at distance traveled in, the, in a soccer game and it's always the midfielders because they have more responsibilities offensively and defensively. Whereas a player like Lionel Messi doesn't really move much throughout the course of the soccer game because he's smart. He lets the game come to him. He has a moment of brilliance and he puts it in the back of the net because he's phenomenal. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of junk in the public sphere based on this private data and it bothers me because I'd rather just have everything public and be able to prove statistically that certain things matter and other things don't. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I, I don't think having it everything public is a good idea. And I found that interesting. We were talking about this before the podcast started. So why is it that you think that, that the data shouldn't be publicly available? Because I tend to be a, you know, prove your work kind of person. I tend to like having everything available, having people be able to vet it and test it from different areas. I'm not a big fan of like, you know, the black box behind the scenes kind of stuff. So I'm curious as to why you're not on the on, on the public mindset when it comes to this. Uh, I, you'd have to have the NHL and the PA agree to have this public. And there is not a chance that that's ever going to happen, at least not currently. Um, having access to this data is going to potentially be very dangerous because you will not have the full scope publicly of understanding what goes on behind the scenes in a hockey of a hockey team and so there are other factors at play that 
teams have to consider that people in the public don't have to consider. And it's going to allow people that already like to yell and scream on Twitter and elsewhere to have more ammunition and to spin it the way that they want to spin it. I think that right now it's the way that hockey Twitter is and the tone that a lot of people speak in on hockey Twitter. When you potentially add this kind of ammunition until it gets figured out what the best way the best avenue to present it as is, I think it's very dangerous because I think it will just lead to people dumping on whether it's organizations or people dumping on players or just, I don't think it's a positive thing quite yet. I think once the NHL gets it right and once they realize what should and maybe shouldn't be public, or maybe they want to clean the data before they make some of it public, I think that might be a better avenue. But what I actually think is the best way to do it is the NHL should obviously have a few seasons where they adjust and make everything to where they want it to be. And then they give access to media companies. So in Canada, companies like Sportsnet and TSN and The Athletic and in the US, uh, NBC Sports Network, ESPN, depending on where their TV deal is, you give access to the writers and the producers at those networks and you allow them to either write about it, in your case with The Athletic, because you can use that data to write about things, or you can allow it to be used on TV, whether you want to show charts or different things of player spacing and that sort of thing. I think that's probably the best way to go about it, because then you're still making it public, but it's not completely public so that everyone can just go through and pick certain things and spin them and yell and scream about it on Twitter, because that's potentially detrimental to the brand. And Gary Bettman's chief job is to make sure that the value of the brand of the NHL and its franchises is as high as it can possibly be. See, I would argue that the argument you're making when it comes to just picking certain things and and convincing yourself that you're right about something because one thing fits your narrative, I'd argue that that's something NHL teams can do and I think will do with a lot of the data because... That's, I mean, when when it comes to players who we have lots of evidence that indicates that they're not good at driving play or giving their team positive on ice results, coaches will point to one specific thing about a player. Like, for example, Nikita Zaitsev is good at stopping the cycle, according to Mike Babcock. So therefore, he's a good player. But there's mountains of evidence that indicates that the other aspects of his game don't result in him making an effective player at five on five. So... I'd be worried that teams behind the scenes are, are going to do the exact same thing that you said and just look at specific areas of the player tracking that fit their narrative and aren't relying on things that are more predictive, more repeatable, and uh, a better indicator of future success. In the public sphere, I feel like the more data you have, the more information you have, it can be vetted. More people can go through it. More people can question it and prove what works, what doesn't work. But that's where you get into the brand thing, right? If you want, if teams don't want to use the data that's available to them or want to use it myopically, that's on them. But Bettman's job is to make sure that the value of the franchises and their brands is as high as possible. And so I just think to start, if you put that data out there and allow people who, and you know who I'm talking about, if you allow those people to just yell and scream with data in a public space, 
you have no control over that. Whereas teams have control. They can hire and fire whoever they want. And that's controlled and they have to be cognizant of their brand. But when you're putting it in the public space and allowing certain people who like to yell and scream about analytics, yell and scream except with more data, it's potentially damaging to the brand. And that's sort of one of the only reasons I think it it won't be public to start. And the fact that teams probably don't want that type of proprietary information public. I mean, teams don't like when former employees go on podcasts and talk, so they probably (laughs) don't want their data public. I can understand that, but at the same time, you look at a league like the NBA, I feel like it's worked out really well there, having a lot of it publicly available at NBA.com. You see people doing some really interesting stuff with it. I know Kirk Goldsbury a few years ago at Grantland was doing some of my favorite stuff with the data. So I feel like there are pros and cons to everything in life, but I tend to be a very uh, super liberal, you know, make everything public, you know, power to the people kind of thing. And I just, I don't like the idea of, of just keeping really cool, new, modern information behind a, you know, behind a black box and just saying, no, 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 don't worry, just trust me. Just trust me that this information is good. And no, uh, that's the whole point of the public service. I don't trust you. I need, I need proof that something works and that something is repeatable and predictive of future results. That's the reason that a lot of us care about, you know, shots, scoring chances, expected goals, zone entry, zone exits. We have lots of proof that these are repeatable and predictive of future results. Whereas if you're just going to tell me that, metric X from player tracking data is a really cool thing that Brett Burns leads the league in. Well, I I need to know the process behind that. And if if I don't know that process, I can't trust that metric. And that's the one thing I'm worried about moving forward. Yeah. And I I get that. But I also think that the NHL has a history of sort of doing things and then changing them. And that's okay because they're adjusting. So I think making it available right away in its pilot stage I don't think making anything of this magnitude available publicly in its infancy is a good idea when you are an organization like the NHL. I think a few years down the road when they've got it right and they know how to present the data in a way that fans can actually understand it, because that's the thing too, is they're going to dump all this data and a lot of your average NHL fans not going to understand it. So those are the fans that are going to be confused and they're going to see one thing and they're going to pick at it. And that's not positive either. I mean, to be fair, the play-by-play files in, in the NHL games are, are very difficult to go through, but you have smart people use coding and machine learning techniques to, uh, to present yeah. it in a very reasonable way. I don't think that should be your biggest concern, really, should it? No, but the, the biggest concern, I would think, is that teams and players don't want the proprietary information public. And let's be fair. We don't need to give the PA and the NHL anything more to argue about in the CBA because they already have issues agreeing on things. So that's something that you've got to look at. Um, I also think, and this makes me really happy, that because this information is going to be available for teams, I think a lot of the people who currently work in the public sphere will probably end up getting hired by NHL teams. And I think that machine learning and people who are really good with coding and that kind of stuff, I think that's going to be a new wave where, you know, the, the, the way of the world these days are people who can code, you know, people who can really work well with computers and work with big data sets. The NHL is getting a huge data set and they're not going to know what to do with it. They need to hire smart people who know how to ma- manipulate that data. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see which teams really dive into that and try to take advantage of that market inefficiency. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, a couple of people. I would think that if these people want to be employed by NHL teams, 
they would likely be very hireable. And it's guys like Micah McCurdy and Emmanuel Perry, who some know went kind of dark recently. So kind of waiting to see what happened there. But He's back on Twitter, but he's always a mystery. <laughs> yes, I love Manny. But it's it's people like that who really have a grasp on not only hockey, but the the coding and machine learning and and how to manipulate the data as well. Yeah, I think Evolving Wild's another great example. Don't tell me about Hart was one in the past who's now working for the Colorado Avalanche. Exactly. So you're going to see a lot of the people that currently do a lot of public work. I wouldn't be shocked if most, if not all of them, were hired by NHL teams because, I mean, you're quite foolish if you think that NHL GMs don't pay attention. They do. They don't get involved in Twitter conversations, but that doesn't mean that they're not on Twitter. So they know that this work exists. And if you're trying to gain a competitive advantage, that's a way you can do that is by bringing somebody like Manny or Micah or the twins at Evolving Wild in-house and having them do it for you. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think uh, earlier you used the word infancy, like this is in its infancy stages. And that's a really good word for it because you think of where baseball was. I don't know when did player tracking come up for them like 10, 15 years ago, the NBA about 10 years ago. So it's a process. It takes a while. Revolutions, uh, unfortunately, in sports don't happen overnight. It's not like really cool movies like V for Vendetta where everyone just shows up with the, the Guy Fox masks. Love uh, it. I know. It's, I, wish, I wish the NHL statistical revolution would be like that and really cool new ideas, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a bit. It's going to take a bit for it to be public, but it's a great first step and I'm looking forward to it. So we'll see what happens in that regard, but I think it's time to move on to the mailbag. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the CWHL news because that just came out today, a few hours ago, in fact, and I feel like that's pretty huge in the hockey world. Yeah, I mean... As somebody who was a former intern at the CWHL, I really, really enjoyed my time there. I learned a lot, not only just about the league, but about the landscape of women's hockey, because that was sort of when the NWHL was kind of created. And so as it stands right now, over 120 players and some of the world's best, like we're talking Hillary Knight, Marie-Philippe Poulin, like big, big names now have nowhere to play. And that's really unfortunate because anyone who's been to a CWHL game who has seen these players play knows that they're immensely talented. Poulin's so fun to watch. Oh my god. She is, for me, the highest entertainment value in terms of a hockey player playing in the women's game. Like, just the things that she can do and the role model that she is, is it's tremendous. So... There's been a lot of discussion over the past year about the one league. Because it's two leagues, or at least it has been up until today. There were two major women's leagues. Exactly. And one league, Cassie Campbell talked about it on the 31 Thoughts podcast. One league is definitely uh, what needs to happen. And having worked at the CWHL, I know that they know what they're doing. So I think with the announcement and introduction of the NHL Female Advisory Committee... Now that the CWHL has kind of said, okay, we're ready and we're folding, I think this is them saying we're ready to have one league and the time is now for the NHL to step up with that female advisory committee and they need to create a viable league that gets supported for all of these players to play in. And there have been roadblocks. 
Cassie Campbell alluded to it. I've had other people discuss these things with me about the different roadblocks in, in women's hockey. And now that there is technically only one league, the NHL should probably step in and go, okay, we're creating the WNHL. This is how it's going to work. And I'd like to see it done because I want to watch these players play hockey. And these players should not lose their um, ability to play hockey because of politics in the boardroom. Like, that's that's shitty. And I was going to say their livelihood, but most of these players, if not all, have other jobs because, unfortunately, it, it, you can't support a family with uh, the wages that you make in, in, the, in the CWHL, which no longer exists, unfortunately. So I completely agree. I really hope the NHL steps up and does something about this because we talk about growing the game. You know, we talk about how in the U.S. hockey, they're really trying to grow the game, how in Canada, the, there's the You Can Play movement. They're going to be going to the, the Olympics in China in a few years because they want to grow the game. You need to grow the game to more than just white dudes, you know? You need to grow the game to people of color. You need to grow the game to women. You need to grow the game to anyone who cares about the game because that's how you grow it. And uh, you look at all your, your female fans right now, a lot of them are upset. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, sad stories on Twitter right now about people's favorite memories from the CWHL. And it, it's, you know, it's a really sad day. We pour one out for, for a league that gave people a lot of entertainment. Marie Philip Poulin, I can't say it enough how amazing of a hockey player she is. So I really hope something gets done in the future. I think one league is the way of the future and the best way to truly grow the game. But again, it's, it's yet to be seen. Apparently the, uh, apparently the NWHL just got word of it this morning as well. So it doesn't seem to be a coordinated plan yet by the two leagues. The players just found out about it this morning. That seems pretty shitty of a thing to do for a league. So I know that you're not going to say anything too negative about it because you used to work for them, but it's just an unfortunate situation at the end of the day. Well, yeah. And I think that it is, it's an awful situation and you feel for everybody involved and you know what? I really hope that the NHL takes this opportunity and says, okay, the time is now. We're going to do this. Because the reality is, is let's say that the NWHL is the only league that exists next year, right? Well, are you going to take a player that came on as a walk-on to your team? Or are you going to take Marie Philippe Poulin and Hillary Knight? Yeah, I might take those two players. <laughs> yeah. So not only is this bad that the CWHL has now folded. It's bad for some of the people in the NWHL too and some of the players there because a lot of national team players play in the CWHL and will come down if there's no other viable option and take spots from those in the NWHL because you would be silly to not have Marie-Philippe Poulin on your team if she said she wanted to play for you. Like That would just be a very poor decision or any of the national team players. So I, I really do think that the NHL is going to step in, and I hope they do because I think it's it's a really unique opportunity for them to essentially put their money where their mouth is and they have hockey is for everyone. Well, now you have your chance to really put your stamp on that, and I think that the time is right. So I don't know what else to say other than, uh, yep, more power to Rachel there. That is, uh, I, I can't top what she just said. Let's move on to one of my favorite questions. What What are your pet peeves when you watch a hockey game? I've got a bunch. Oh God, you go first because I feel like you and I have a lot of similar pet peeves. We should should we break this down? If you're attending a game, what are your pet peeves? And if you're at home, what are your pet peeves? 
see, you go to a lot more hockey games in person, I think, than I do because uh, I'm broke and poor and never worked for an NHL team. And uh, I feel like you have a lot more in that regard. So, so what are yours when attending a game? Um, this is one thing that really bothers me, and it's at any sporting event. People who yell during a moment of silence or during the national anthem, unless you're singing the national anthem, that's completely different. But if you're speaking and talking during a moment of silence, to be quite honest with you, I hope you get thrown out of the facility because that is just the highest form of disrespect. I feel like that's like separate from hockey in, in general. That's just like being a terrible human being. So. Exactly. Um, one of the big ones is people who yell shoot when the puck <laughs> is at center ice. Oh, I thought you meant on the power play when your defenseman has the puck at the top of the blue line. It's like, yeah, that would be a really great high percentage shot. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's amazing that the team is down. Let's say the team's down one and there's two minutes left in the game and the defenseman's carrying the puck over their own blue line and some idiot in the 10th row is yelling shoot from your own blue line. Yeah, because that's going to be effective and probably an icing. What do you think the expected goals are on that one? Is that a is that a one percent shot? Is that it's a Vesa Toscala? Well, I mean, Corey Schneider just got scored on from center ice. Shoot your shot, man! It's twenty nineteen. Yeah, and I think <laughs> in the KHL, a goaltender got scored on twice in one playoff series from the opposite icing line. But I would say that the expected goals is probably in and around one percent. So stop yelling, shoot! They have a better grip on the game than you do. Now, if the puck is directly in front of the opposing person's net and they pass it off, then you know what? Okay, maybe you can yell shoot. But I do not want to hear yell shoot if it's not basically in the slot or at the net front. Just don't do it. Or if, like, a, an elite shooter has the puck. Like, if Patrick Lane has the puck and enters the offensive zone, yeah, your shooting's probably a really good idea. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, you, you know what I mean. Don't yell shoot when the puck's in the defensive zone. That's not effective. Or for me, it's on the power play when it's like on the perimeter and like a, a seam pass hasn't been made or specifically when your defenseman has it at the point. No, please don't shoot because that would be a terrible decision. Yeah. Or the guy trying who's sitting in the stands trying to coach the team. I like that guy, man. That oh guy, he's got his clipboard. He's got God. his uh, beer in one hand. He's got. <laughs> I was at it was a Leafs. Oh, I want to say Tampa game a few years ago. And this guy, four or five seats down from me, pulled out a lineup card and was taking notes in, like, the 15th row. I'm like, dude. What you don't realize is that was me tracking zone exits and zone entries. <laughs> like, he's he's like, well, I think he, this person should, should uh, switch here and this should be the power play unit. I'm like, well, you know what? Why don't you march right down and... You tell him that, and let's see how that goes for you. That's like, a passionate fan. Holy cares about you're it. You're bringing a lineup team. card to the game like that's it's genius. Aggressive. That's he's saving money. He doesn't have to buy a program. I like that. <laughs> okay, what about? So I guess we both watch at home, and we both have friends who uh, probably aren't as uh, involved with hockey as we are. So, what are your pet peeves when you're watching with, whether you're at home or at the bar with like some of your buddies? Biggest one for me, uh, it's it's it revolves around the same play. So it's it's when a forward doesn't cover for their defenseman, and this can be in a number of different ways. But the biggest one is puck is rimmed around the boards, comes to about the hash marks along the boards, and defenseman pinches to keep it in. That's smart. You want your team to maintain possession in the offensive zone. F three, the forward who is furthest back towards your own net, 
is supposed to cover for the defenseman and take a spot at the blue line until he's come back and taken the spot at the blue line. Until that defenseman comes back, the forward is the defenseman. And it drives me insane when the forwards don't cover for the defenseman. It'll lead to a two-on-one the other way. And then the camera zooms in on that defenseman who pinched. And I'm like, oh, no, it was the forward's fault. Or if the forward does cover the defenseman, the puck comes out, and then he tries to jump the play. Oh, that's my favorite. Just amazing. And, th- and then again, the camera will zoom to the defenseman who pinched. And it's like, Jake Gardner should not have pinched there. Ooh, Morgan Riley being too aggressive. And I'm like, no, it was the forward. F3 was not doing his... Now... Should you be pinching when you're up a goal with two minutes left? No, 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 no. no. That's a different scenario, obviously. I'm talking more like in the first or second period. It's just modern hockey is about puck possession, you know? And I'm a huge fan of more fluid, positionless play, having defensemen activated on the breakout, activated on the forecheck, and puck comes around the boards. I want my defenseman pinching to keep that puck alive because I want the puck. But in order for that to happen, forwards got to do the thing and cover for the defenseman. And when they don't, it's really just laziness or selfishness in trying to be involved in the offense. Or lack of awareness, in which case, focus. (laughs) Yeah, so... The inner coach of me just has zero place for that, and it drives me nuts. And then it drives me even crazier when fans and the, the cameramen and the, the commentators all rip on the defenseman for making the right play, and that drives me nuts. Oh, yeah, and that goes to one of my pet peeves, which is the hot takes slash brutal opinion kind of friend, where they're like, let's say that um, somebody, like the defenseman pinches and the forward's not back, and it's a two-on-one, and then... My friend is sitting there blaming the one defenseman that was back on the two-on-one. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Or they blame um, the goaltender for giving up a, a like a breakaway goal. Or cross-ice pass where like he had no chance. Yeah, like, royal yeah, road no, pass. No. So it's that and then my absolute favorite hot take. I was out watching the game and having chicken wings And my dad's friend said something, and the chicken wing legitimately fell out of my hand. I'm not even kidding. And my jaw just dropped. He said, Austin Matthews is a liability and should not play center. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, pardon? And he said that, and I made him explain it because I just couldn't believe it came out of his mouth. But it's people like that who just have the most scalding takes. And these are some of them. Uh, Jake Gardner is not a good defenseman, which we can clearly see now him being out of the lineup. He's a good defenseman. Um, The forward who is in the corner who turned the puck over but gets back to make the defensive play is and then goes off for a line change, like changed at the wrong time. Okay, no. He turned the puck over came back, made the defensive play, and then went for a change. Like, people blaming the wrong people are, that's one of the things where I'm like, oh, lordy. That kind of goes into what I was talking about, too. It's frustrating. Yeah, it's like, you can't even, I can't even have a conversation with you if we have to go over the merits of how Austin Matthews plays, or I had to explain last year a lot why Taylor Hall should be a heart candidate. Because if he's not a defenseman or uh, the Art Ross winner, then you shouldn't be up for the heart. I'm like, yeah, that's uh, not how the award works, but okay. <laughs> uh, I got one more. It's um, the obsession with face-offs uh, and the broadcasts mostly in that 
they'll be like, whoa, the Leafs are, they've lost 18 of the 26 faceoffs, and that's really costing them in this game. And then you look up, and the shots are like 35 to 20 for the Leafs, and the scoring chances are like 15 to 5 for the Leafs, and they just, they haven't got a save in that game. And it's like, well, yeah, great analysis. Clearly the, the faceoffs are why their, their goaltending hasn't been great this game. Yeah, and like, I understand, listen, if you, there were a couple of goals that I've seen where it's, a face-off loss and a shot within three seconds in the back of the net. Well, you know what? Okay, that has to do with losing a face-off. However, I do not want to hear when a team either wins control possession off the draw or loses the draw but then gains possession, has an opportunity to break out, turns the puck over, and then gets scored on. That has nothing to do with a face-off and everything to do with whoever turned the puck over. Because once you regain possession... The face-off is now irrelevant, pretty much. You have possession. You have possession. It's nullified kind of thing. And that is one of my other pet peeves, is the consistently having to explain the game while the game is going on. Like, I don't mind explaining at commercials or at intermission if my friends who are learning the game, like, hey, what about this? Or like, oh my god, I can't believe he did this. Like, okay, I'll explain to you, but I'm not doing it while the game's on, because when I watch the game, I like to watch the game. I don't want to have to explain why the lines are being shuffled or why the power play units changed or why it's not this defenseman's fault or why it's not player X's fault. Oh, Rachel, you're not going to survive on Twitter. Oh, this is why a lot of times you will not see me engage on Twitter. I was going to say, I haven't seen you on Twitter for a little bit during the last few Leafs games. Where yeah, been? I just... Uh, it's been a fun time. No, it's not. I mean, I Garrett did see Sparks. your... Do, 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 do. <laughs> oh, that last night, my God. I just... I saw someone tweet about Garrett Sparks and I was like, yeah, and that'll be enough of Twitter for the night because I have this setting on my Twitter where I can just... If I scroll to like one screen, it takes basically all the hockey off and... It's very nice. When I was in Germany, I had that on. So I only... It's just Bayern Munich and like EPL and like TFC. and <laughs> Yeah, because I wanted a break from hockey. And sometimes, oh man, like if the Leafs go out in six, because I live in Toronto and the bulk of my friends are from here, my Twitter feed is going to be insufferable. And I'm sure you're the same way in terms of like having to answer questions all the time. It's not that fun. I I try to stay level-headed in in the in the face of uh, chaos. I guess is the right word. Just don't engage. It's it's interesting, but I I like it. I think it's fun. I got one last one, by the way. Before before we get out of here, um, when your team is offside and your team dumps the puck in, when they have time to reverse it and and maintain possession, it just it drives me crazy. You're, you're giving the other team the puck. I. Ugh, it happens all the time, and I can't stand it. I hate dumping the puck in to begin with, so I'm with you. Like, for example, the puck just comes out at the blue line. Your defense would have tried to keep it in. Crap, it came a foot outside, and now you realize that all your forwards are stuck in the offensive zone, and you instinctively whip it back in the offensive zone. No, because now your forwards have to take five seconds to skate out of the zone. The other team's just going to have possession. They have lots of time to start their breakout. As opposed to just reversing it and then regroup... Skating back nine times out of ten, your your defensive partner has already backed up and is an easy outlet. 
It's it's maintaining possession. It, it's okay, let's try this again. When the forwards come out, we want the puck. Nope, I'm just going to shoot it back in and the other team has it now. Drives me nuts and I see it all the time from some, sometimes from some, from some excellent defensemen. And, and I, part of me has to think it's maybe they're being coached to do it, but I, I don't think it's a wise choice. Right. Uh, we also should mention before we wrap up here that uh, you and I are going to be at Puck Talks at the Rec Room in Toronto on April 6th. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Is it a live podcast? Is that how we're is that how we're advertising it? Or? Um, it's more just I think we're not gonna actually do a podcast. We haven't decided if we're gonna do a podcast next week or not because we're gonna be on this. But essentially, we're gonna have a host, Andy Petrillo, who's fabulously talented, is going to sort of either she's gonna put topics out to us. She's going to let the crowd ask us questions, just things like that. So it'll be nice to sort of interact and have the SAS per 60 be up the charts. So yeah, that's going to be so much fun. So again, when's that happening? That's April 6th. That's a Saturday, right? The night of the Leafs' last regular season game? Yes, and never mind the Leafs' last regular season game. It is Bob Cole's last Hockey Night in Canada broadcast. And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I revere Bob Cole. So for me, like... This is as appointment viewing as it gets. The man is 50 years in the HNIC booth. He's a legend. So the fact that we get to be part of a night where that's on the docket, I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm coming from the soccer game. TFC plays that day, and they happen to be playing my favorite player. And so I will be coming from there, but I'm happy to... Uh, mingle and say hello to everyone if you have questions or anything i think ian and i will definitely do our best to sort of hang out for a bit i'll definitely be there afterwards having a few drinks and then i think so basically the way it's going to work is our event what time is it at um our panel's at six fifteen. okay so that's perfect because then right after our panel like we can stay for some drinks and whatnot and then if we want to go to dangle's event which is for the leafs game at, at the um i have to be there so <laughs> And that's the thing. It's like you can either stay at the rec room, like have some drinks there, watch the game, or we can go to Dangle's event, which is right around the corner. Is it at Real Sports? Yeah, it's at Real Sports. Yeah, so it's going to be a fun Saturday. So again, the rec room in Toronto, um, April 6th, we're on stage just after 6 p.m. It's right by um, Skydome. It's just across the street from Skydome, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. It's directly across the street. Um, Steve Dangle is going to have details on his sort of event. I know I'll be there. Um sort of after the puck talks, but um, yeah, you should definitely listen and keep your ears peeled for details on Dangle's event as well. And me and uh, Rachel are going to be on stage giving you some scorching hot takes. It's going to be fantastic stuff. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We can have some drinks afterwards. Come meet us, talk to us, tell us why you love Travis Dermott, and I will give you a hug. So, yeah. (laughs) And please do not come with the hot takes. (laughs) Just come up and tell uh, Rachel how much you hate Damon Severson. That's oh all you need to God. do. Oh my God, do not do that. Please do not do that. Oh, sorry, is that a no comment zone? I'm sorry. No, I'm it's sorry. not. No, no, no. We can we can talk about how the merits of Damon Severson as a defenseman. It's going to be a fun weekend. So again, Saturday, April 6th, Rec Room. We're going to be there doing a live Puck Talks, technically a Staff and Graph podcast. I'm not sure if it's actually going to be one that we upload to, to, to iTunes and Spotify and whatnot, but it's going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully we see you there. And uh, until next week, thank you for listening. And uh, thanks, everybody. Should be a lot of fun. See ya. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.